Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, each time you come in the door on a uh, Sunday morning, you normally get two things, don't you? You get a name tag. Oh, do I have a name tag? No, I don't have a name tag. <laughs> of all the weeks, I don't have one. Anyway, you normally get a name tag uh, and you get a church bulletin, a church bulletin, a couple of bits of paper. Well, this final chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians is a little bit like those bits of paper that you receive when you come in, a name tag and a, a bulletin. A bulletin is a mixture of bits and pieces of instruction news, words of encouragement, greetings, plans for the future, that kind of thing. And our names are mentioned on our, our name tags as well, and there's names mentioned in the bulletin. Though none of the names, actually, I notice that people have on their name tags are any of the names that appear in the passage today. There's no Stephanuses or Fortunatuses or Archicacus. I'm not sure if I can pronounce it right. Um, now, what might seem to be a jumbled mixture of information in this chapter, there is still a bit of a theme running through it related to generosity. And what does it mean to have a spirit of generosity in our congregation? Well, let, let's have a look as we dig our way through. You may have noticed that in the middle of the chapter, Paul throws a few bullet point principles in, or a bit of a summary of his instructions that he's been putting throughout his letter. And so the question, the first question I have in the outline there, what four things does Paul tell us uh, them to do in verse 13? And we already know because we've been looking at them down the front here with the children. So can, without looking, can you remember what they are? Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Oh, close. Be people of courage. Yes, be strong. Yes, that's right. And the fifth thing is what be... Uh, um, uh, do everything in love, but we'll look at that in a minute. Now, be on your guard, stand firm, be men of courage, be strong. Now, with the Rugby League Grand Final tonight, it sounds a little bit like what the coach is going to say. You know, a bit of a pep talk before they go out on the field. Be strong, stand firm, be on guard, be men of courage, be strong, of course. Now, through our journey on 1 Corinthians, we've seen how they needed to be on guard first and foremost, about the negative influences of the empty values of the culture around them. Now, see if you can recall some of the topics that we've covered. Now, we started preaching 1 Corinthians on the 28th of March last year. Can you believe it? Now, we've, we've gone via Habakkuk and Matthew and a few other books as well, but it's been a long journey through. So see if you can recall some of these things, some of the false wisdom that's been coming up throughout the book. Chapters 1 and 2, such as the confusing the wisdom of God with the false wisdom of the world in chapters 1 and 2, uh, not judging one another according to their social status in verse chapters 3 and 4, not using their God-given sexuality in self-destructive ways that also ruin other people's lives in chapters 5 to 7, not becoming complacent about greed in chapter 6 and not using their knowledge to puff themselves up in chapters 8 to 10. Not having divisions in the church in chapters 11 to 14, but to build one another up. And not scoffing at the resurrection in chapter 15. All these things are examples of the, the false wisdom of the age. And Paul is reminding them to be on their guard. To be on their guard against this kind of foolishness. The language to stand firm in the faith links us back to the previous chapter. And Sam was talking a little bit about this last week. But it also links back to what it says at the beginning of chapter 15. Uh, especially what Paul said in chapter 15 at the beginning. He says, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, to stand firm in the faith, on which you have taken your stand. And what was of, uh, question number two, what is of first importance 
in chapter 15. What is of first importance? Can anybody remember? A few weeks ago we looked at that. What was the first importance? For He goes on to say, For what I received I passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and he appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve. It was Paul's way of summarising what they had taken their stand on, the good news, the good news of Jesus. And a few weeks ago I mentioned how the word sin was a little bit like God drawing a line in the sand. A bit like a line marked out on a minefield that says, danger, go no further. But sin is when in our arrogance we think that we know better than God and ignore God's lines drawn in the sand. God gives us over to what we have chosen. And the judgment of death is the consequence. But the good news, the good news is that God wants to save us from ourselves. God offers us a way out by sending Jesus to die in our place, as we know. And as we've been looking at over the last few, few weeks in, the, in the chapter 15, Jesus didn't stay dead, of course. The resurrection of Jesus was a real moment in history that publicly declared that Jesus was the Son of God. He is the Son of God, God himself. God the Son, whose sacrifice of death in our place was sufficient to pay the penalty that our sins deserved, so for those who trust in Jesus alone, we have the assurance that when it comes to our time to die, to be dead and buried, we also will rise to live with God. A, a connection to Jesus is a connection to God. We now as live as disciples of Jesus, saved by faith in the grace of God and committed to growing as lifelong disciples of Jesus. This is the message that Paul is calling the Corinthians to stand firm in, to not let go of, to hold on to, to live in light of. But having said that, standing firm embraces more than paying lip service to a body of doctrine. The good news of Jesus transforms us so that we persist in living in a way that reflects the values that our convictions hold to. We walk the talk. And this is what the Corinthians were struggling with the whole time. They were prone to, to lax moral standards reflective of the environment around them. And there was a constant struggle. And ironically, standing firm for the Corinthians sometimes involved included instructions to flee rather than standing still. Flee from sexual immorality, he said. Flee from idolatry. Sometimes standing firm means fleeing from certain things. And what is it that God is calling you to flee from at the moment as he calls you to be on your guard against the influence, the destructive influence of wisdom that doesn't come from God and undermines what is of first importance in your life? What is it that's distracting you from standing firm in the faith at this point in time? But being on guard and standing firm in the faith requires great courage and strength. Now, there's going to be a bit of a show of physical strength and courage by the players in the grand final tonight. And when I see some of those Parramatta players, man, some of those Islanders, they're big, they're, they're big units, they're big guys. And I certainly wouldn't want to be out there, one of those guys running at me at full speed. Certainly not. It would take a lot of courage to be out there. But it takes more than just an impressive physique to have the courage and strength of character to stand firm in the faith, to take risks for the sake of the gospel. 
Now, the people are about to enter into the promised land. were called to take great risks in response to the word of God. And Joshua heard these words that Richard read out for us earlier. Be strong and courageous. Don't be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Paul himself also knew from personal experience that courage was needed. For example, he wrote in chapter 4, We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. In an increasing hostile world, following Christ in conviction and behaviour is not for the faint-hearted. It's not for cowards. It takes great courage to not give in to fear or hopelessness. It takes great courage to faithfully carry out our responsibilities. But that comes at a cost. But we can heed the words of verse 13, be men of courage, be people of courage, be strong. We can be people of courage who are willing to take risks for the sake of the gospel because we know that in the face of those risks, strength comes from knowing that God is with us and God is working his purpose out in our lives and through our lives. Personally, it's, I take great comfort in these words as I wrestle with what it means to be serving in this capacity as, as your minister. There's been lots of challenges for me personally in my personal growth and there's been a, a number of times that I feel like I'm ready to chuck in the towel already and I've only been here for a year. And these verses have been of great encouragement to me, particularly this week. May, may we grow in that together as we see God at work in our lives, working in amongst us. I don't know, whatever it is you're facing right now, let me encourage you to be on your guard. Be on your guard that these circumstances are not undermining what it means to hold to what is of first importance. Let me encourage you to stand firm in the faith, to be people of courage, to be strong. All right, I have a question for the Year 7s if you're listening. What is the shortest verse in Chapter 16? Does anybody know? If anybody's listening, what's the shortest verse? Okay, yes. Uh, I keep getting the two cousins mixed up now. I think it's Elijah. Yes. <laughs> yes, verse 14. Can you read it out for me? Yes, do everything in love. Five syllables. The reference is longer than the actual verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse. And chapter 16 verse uh, uh, 14. The reference is longer than the actual verse. Do everything in love. It's one of the easiest memory verses in the Bible. Now, you shouldn't be able to get that wrong. So, big challenge. It's actually a little challenge during the week. Try to memorise, do everything in love. Now, I must say the words do everything in love at the end of that sort of those bullet points uh, to be on your guard, uh, stand firm in the faith, be people of courage, uh, be strong, and then you get this do everything in love at the end. Now, that's not the type of thing that you'd hear at the football prep talk. He's not, the coach is not going to say to the footballers, oh, uh, and don't forget... Uh, do everything in love. And out they go, oh, yes, you know, happy, happy, clappy. Yes, now it would be the last thing you would hear. But it was clearly a bit of an issue for the Corinthians. Now, here we go. There's a question here, question three, uh, question four, actually, in the bulletin. What chapter in Corinthians does Paul say knowledge puffs up but love builds up in the first verse of the chapter? Does anybody know? Uh, yeah, Glenn does, actually, yes. Chapter eight, yes, that's right, chapter eight. Uh, Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love build, builds up. The lack of love among the Corinthians surfaced in chapter 8 when those who had more knowledge about the Bible didn't love those whose knowledge was weaker. 
uh, knowledge about God's word. In chapter 11, the rich people struggled to love those who were less well off than them. That was shown in the Lord's Supper. And then in chapter 14, the more eloquent among them were more interested in showing off and talking themselves up in the way that they were speaking up the front than speaking in a way that was building other people up. Throughout the book, there's there's been a constant struggle with loving one another. And of course, what is the famous chapter that talks about love in in the whole book of 1 Corinthians? What chapter is it? Chapter 13, yes. The famous chapter 13 on love was appropriate for the church in Corinth as they wrestled with all the factions and controversies that were going on, not unlike uh, many uh, common to our experience today in different ways. And it is more, more than appropriate for us as we, we come together. Of course, we're not going to agree on everything. Uh, and so we've got to work out how to move forward. And so self-sacrificing love is a model shown to us by Christ And it is the key to health and growth of the church as we speak the truth of God's word to one another. As we speak the truth in love. Not just speaking the truth, not just loving, but speaking the truth in love. And those two things coming together. And this is what God is calling his people to courageously stand firm and be strong in speaking the truth in love. Now at a pragmatic level for the Corinthians... In chapter 16, Paul calls on them to reflect this on the, uh, to reflect this by their, their generosity. Now, the generosity is picked up in a couple of things, um, but um, uh, he begins the chapter here with the words "now about." Now, the word "now about" appears twice in this chapter. Uh, where else does it appear? Can you tell me very quickly. Where else does "now about" appear in this chapter? Verse 12, that's right. So there's two now abouts. And how many now abouts are there in the whole book of 1 Corinthians? Does anybody know? You know, he kept saying now about this, now about that, now about that, now about that. There's six altogether, actually. Uh, and uh, so he um, talks about um, marriage. He talks about virgins in chapter 7. talks about food sacrifice to idols in chapter 8. Spiritual gifts in 12. And then the collection and talking about Apollos in chapter 16. Now, when we think of generosity, we naturally think of being generous with our financial wealth and resources. Now that's certainly true, but it's also more than that. And uh, and this, uh, these couple of these verses will unpack that. But let's first look at the financial side. Now I know some of you are visiting church today. I just want to let you know that uh, we don't talk about money every week. Every time you come to church, we're not always talking about finances. It just happens to be in the passage today. Uh, so despite any misconception that the church is only interested in your money, uh, that's not necessarily the case. We don't talk about it every week. But it has, does happen to talk about it in verse 1 and 2. Verse 1 and 2 says, Now about the collection for God's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gifts to Jerusalem. Now the first now about is related to the collection of money to share with the poorer brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. They were in Corinth, and then the poorer brothers were in Jerusalem who were facing chronic financial problems. Now, the collection among the Gentile believers for the Jewish believers in the city served as a means to, to strengthen the sense of unity among them. Because they were Gentiles, they were Jews, and there's a sense of us and them kind of thing. But this collection was a, a show of unity. 
But there are some helpful principles here for reflecting on how to be gracious with our, and generous with our money. There's three words here uh, that I want to pick up. Regular, planned and proportionate. Uh, let me, a regular, it says on the first day of the week. Now, usually that's considered uh, the day that Christ rose from the dead, but it was a part of the regular schedule. And so it's on the first day of the week. It's planned. It says set aside. Set aside. The intentional planning uh, was probably to avoid any last-minute scrambling around and the, and the added pressure that brings. And if you, if you, um, you know, you plan last night to make sure that you got up in time. That means you came to church on time today. Uh, but in the old, all the all these days, all the phones automatically change for you. But I remember in the old days, you'd have to manually change your clock radio and things like that. And the amount of times that I got it wrong was it was crazy. And uh, but it's planned. If you plan things, you set it aside. It's intentional, and it's avoiding any last-minute scrambling. But proportionate, it was also proportionate. In keeping with his income is another way of saying that some can afford more than others. Some can afford to give more than others proportionally. Now for them uh, in Corinth, it might vary week to week depending on how the business was going at the time. Like we live in a different era where we're generally depending on what industry you're in. The income is a lot more predictable. We know that in advance. Um, but for the people of Corinth, it was sort of not as predictable. But, so it was in setting aside money in proportion to what was going on for them. So that means for some people, giving 50% of their income away won't affect their lifestyle at all, a great deal. While for other people, giving 10% away is a real stretch. So it's not necessarily focused on numbers, but just reflecting on what's proportional to your income. While well, I'm not talking about giving to the local church here in this passage, these principles still apply to giving in, in lots of ways. And so if the pattern of regular, planned and proportionate giving is not the way that you currently approach your financial contributions, let me encourage you to reconsider uh, uh, and use these principles as, as a guide. Now certainly from a financial point of view, the congregation and the, the parish, there's, there's been a, a downturn in the giving uh, over the last little while, so we're 12% down uh, on, on what, uh, what we've been up normally uh, receiving. And so that affects the way decisions are made. And, uh, uh, and so let me encourage you to reconsider uh, whether your giving uh, is uh, regular, planned or proportioned or whether you need to increase or whatever the case, or your circumstances have changed so you're able to give more. Now, for, for many newcomers, you've probably noticed that we don't pass a plate around. Now, I grew up in a church where we passed a, an offertory plate around and people would put money in. We don't do that in this congregation. Uh, but if you, if, you, if you notice at the back of the bulletin there and on the bottom, there's this little detail there every single week. It's the, the, the bank details uh, and the information that you could use as a guide to actually um, make a regular commitment to giving. Uh, so please prayerfully consider how you can be regular, planned and proportionate with your financial giving, both within the congregation, within the church, but also the, for the many gospel causes that are available to us across the community. Uh, and many people are involved in, in different, different causes in different ways. So let me encourage you to reflect on that. Now in a conversation with a financial planner that I was having last year, I just met him once and he said uh, when he sits down with Christians to talk through their finances, he often finds that their entertainment budget outstrips uh, their budget of giving to the church. And it was quite an insightful challenge uh, that he, he, 
uh, that we reflect on as, as our lifestyles is our entertainment budget higher than our budget of giving to the church. It's a, it's a helpful challenge. But it's always important to remember that the word for gift comes from the word for grace. And the gift that was being offered was an extension of their grace, just as the spiritual gifts people received from God were an extension of God's grace to them. It is for any kind of giving, any kind of service, is a response of grace to the grace that God has first shown to us. We are called to be generous because God is generous to us. But there is more to generosity than the regular planned and proportionate financial giving. And although it's not a substitute for financial giving, the generosity of spirit towards one another is also an expression of grace and generosity. This is picked up in the context of Paul's complicated travel plans that have woven throughout this chapter. Now, a quick summary is that in verse 5, Paul mentions his plans to come to Corinth. In verse 6 and 7, it's all about what he hopes to do when he's there in Corinth. And then finally, verse 8 and 9 touches on what he will do in the meantime. Now, all the while, he's acknowledging that he is not in control, as he states there, as the Lord permits, as he says. Now, in the meantime, Paul plans to send his fellow worker, Timothy. But he has some reservations about whether they will have a generous attitude towards him. So verse 10 says this. Verse 10 says, If Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you. For he is carrying on the work of the Lord, just as I am. No one, then, should refuse to accept him. Send him on his way in peace, so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. To refuse to accept, in the language here, can mean to treat him with contempt. This reflects an arrogant attitude towards Timothy that suggests that his ministry among them has no merit or no worth. The fact that Paul goes on to speak about Apollos in verse 12 there, he also mentions 12, now about our brother Apollos, suggests that maybe the Corinthians were hoping for a visit from Apollos instead. Now, we don't know why Apollos was unwilling to go to Corinth, but if you remember from chapter 1 that Paul was saying that some among you say, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter, I follow Christ, if you remember that. Uh, so maybe he, Apollos was aware that there was some kind of personality cult that was forming amongst the Corinthians. And he, he didn't want a bar of it. He didn't want to go in and sort of promote that kind of thinking that people are following individuals. And Paul is adamant that the ministry of Timothy was the same as that as Paul. And he says so in verse 10 there. He says these words. For he is carrying on the work of the Lord, just as I am. I think the temptation sometimes is to respond to personalities. Now some people are easier to listen to than others, um, but it's the word of God. Uh, and some people we, we get on more easily with than others. But when we're speaking the word of God, it's the word of God. And so we need to sit under the authority of God's word as people serve amongst us. Now Paul goes off to, on to rattle off a few other names as examples to follow. And here's a question for you for the year sevens, if you're hearing me. How many different names are there in chapter 16? 
chapter 6, how many different names? Uh, somebody says three. I won't embarrass you about who it was, but um, there's more than three. Um, do you want to guess? Mike, are you sure? You want to <laughs> put yourself out there? How many? Oh, yes, nine if you include God and... Okay, right. Yeah, that's pretty close, actually. I got eight, but I didn't include God, so that's a good one. Didn't pick up on that. Nice one, son. <laughs> uh, including Paul, I had eight. And, divert, and then you can see the household of Stephanus is there, uh, who devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Stephanus, Fortunatus, I think that's how you pronounce it. Archaicus, or, uh, and then uh, who supplied what was lacking uh, for them. They refreshed my spirit, was the language that Paul's using. And there was Aquila and Priscilla, who um, Paul had uh, mentioned, in, uh, who met, who talked about, sorry, in Acts chapter 18. So the household of Stephanus seems to be a family that had practical expressions of love for those in need, and Stephanus and his two mates went to provide for Paul. Uh, and um, these are all people who were committed to carrying on the work of the Lord. You know, I guess a practical expression of what it means to, to have a generous, welcoming spirit that reinforces the bond of love, peace and respect within the congregation is expressed in an unusual way there at the end of verse 20. And I'm sure if you notice this, it says, greet one another with a holy kiss. That's a bit of an unusual expression, a holy kiss. What's a holy kiss? Uh, what makes it a holy kiss rather than just a kiss? probably related to the fact that it's a greeting among fellow believers. Now, often when Paul tells them to greet one another in a, in a, with a holy kiss, it is in the context of a congregation in conflict. And he wants their greeting to reflect notions of reconciliation and peace and oneness in Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm generally, you might have noticed, I'm generally not a hugger or a kisser. And so I always sort of get it wrong. Sometimes somebody leans in and I think, am I supposed to give them a hug here or a kiss and someone kiss them on the ear instead of on the cheek? And I get it all wrong. Now, I'm happy to give you a hug or a kiss or whatever the case is, but uh, if I awkwardly mess it up completely, it's just because I'm, I'm not usually comfortable completely. But a hearty handshake or whatever the case is, uh, whatever's appropriate, but... Uh, I like to, to give a handshake at the door and I like to stand at the door and greet you in some particular way. But I think greeting one another when we come to church is, is an expression uh, of our unity that we have together in Christ. There's a, uh, a reflection of our notions of reconciliation and peace and oneness in Christ. And uh, greeting one another with a holy kiss in a culturally appropriate way. Maybe in a Mediterranean context, the, the kissing on either cheek is an appropriate cultural expression. But however we want to express it in this context, uh, in a, a sensitive and appropriate way, that's the, a way of greeting one another that reflects that we are actually reconciled together. We have a oneness, we have a unity. Now we have different opinions and we different uh, um, things and a conflict that we have about different issues. And we've certainly seen some of the different things that have come up. But at the end of the day, we still want to be unified and, um, and recognise our oneness in Christ and celebrate that. It's a, it's a reflection of the attitude of, of, of the hearts of the Corinthians that Paul wanted to, them to have when they were welcoming Timothy into their midst. Let's be alert to maintaining a safe environment here in our congregation so people have nothing to fear when they come into our presence. You know, next week in the title of the sermon is How to Walk into Church. It's a bit of an unusual one. Uh, we're exploring that. But it's an opportunity to unpack together what it means to be gracious in our attitude towards one another 
in a more practical way when we gather together in church. Well, let me... um, There's a a question here. Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament and 11 of them finish with a reference to the grace of God. Uh, The grace of God is at the end, 11. Which two do not? Now, here you go. You can have a wild guess. Romans. Yes, Romans does not finish with the word grace in the last sentence. And, of course... Uh, the other one is 1 Corinthians. Yes, I thought you might get it. Okay, yes, 1 Corinthians doesn't actually finish with the word grace. The second, what's that? Yes, the second last does, but not the last one. I said, that's right. Yes, I thought somebody might call that out. <laughs> yes, now he says, My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, I guess it's. it's it's along with, a, along with a personal touch of Paul saying in, in uh, verse uh, 21 where he says, I write these final verses in my own hand. It sort of reveals that Paul has a deep love and commitment to the Corinthians. As much as he spent the letter um, criticising them and pointing out some of the issues that they need to grow, uh, it is a reflection of his deep commitment to them that he's giving them room to grow. He's wanting to speak the truth, but he's speaking the truth in love. He's giving them room to grow. And I hope that is reflected in the way that we relate to each other. None of us are perfect. We're growing. We're learning together. But I hope that we give each other the room to grow. Now, we need to make sure that we speak the truth to one another, but we need to speak the truth in love. And Paul is a great model of that. Well, hopefully you received more than just a name tag and a bulletin uh, when you came in this morning. I hope you, you came through the rainbow balloons there. If you're, if you're watching online, we have a whole bunch of balloons there left over from the kids' club, uh, and uh, we didn't want to waste them. But I hope your experience among us is not one of fear. I uh, hope that you walk out the door in peace uh, with a heart inspired by the good news of Jesus to be generous with all that God has given you and all that God has made you to be. Let me pray to that end. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have a reason to stand firm in the faith because you who have made promises to us in Christ Jesus are faithful to your promises. Help us to be on guard against a culture that draws us away from what is of first importance. Help us to be people of courage as we take risks for the sake of introducing people to you and your love for them in Christ. Thank you that we can be strong in the face of those risks, knowing that you are with us and that knowing that you are at work to bring about your purposes in the middle of the risks that we take to be courageous. Within all this, Lord, help us to be people who do everything in love because you first loved us. May we be people of generosity as we reflect your generous love shown to us in Christ. May we be generous with our finances and generous in our spirit towards one another and the people that you bring into our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.